Hey, stay standing for one minute, will you? You know, as we worship the Lord and his presence comes not just for us, but for you. And if you'll open your hearts and your minds to have a, a real sense of expectation in these next few minutes now as we open the word that he has a message very specifically and uniquely for you. I had a friend who switched jobs and in order to go into his new job, he had to get a standard physical. And when he got the standard physical, they identified a real serious problem health wise that he would have never known about if he hadn't just had to get a standard physical. He was unaware of what was going on inside of him. Once he became aware of it, then healing could come. And it may be the case for many of us here this morning, we are unaware of something that's going on inside of us. And God in his goodness and in his kindness and his love for you wants to open your eyes of what you may be unaware of to bring a greater, richer revelation of who Jesus is in your life. Let me pray. Lord, you were here before we got here. You welcomed us into this place. And so now with open hearts and open minds, would you speak to each of us uniquely? Each person here, their own unique story, their own unique place. Would you speak and would you transform us, Jesus? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks. Thank you, team. I want you to go back in time with me about 2,000 years. And there's this young guy. For us, he's got kind of a strange name. His name is Epaphras. And he hears about another guy who's in this big city called Ephesus. That guy's name is Paul. And he hears that every day, Paul goes into the CBD and he finds this hall and he's telling about a Messiah. And Epaphras says, I've got to hear what he has to say. So Epaphras one day goes to listen to Paul and he is radically converted. He becomes a Christ follower. He's full of faith. He's enthusiastic. So much so that he wants to spread the news of Christianity and of Jesus. So he goes to a village about 100 miles outside of Ephesus. This village is called Colossae, and he starts a church. And this church has got a lot of vibrant young people in it, and they're passionate about God. They want everything there is that God has for them. They're like you and I. Uh, they want the fullness of God. They want everything that you could have from God. They want it to live in every aspect of their life. They want the power of God. They're tired of failure and of feeling weak. They don't want to be overpowered by the enemy anymore. So they want to live in an authority. They want holiness. They desire to do good. They desire to do right. And this church seems to be flourishing. And then you go a bit forward in time, and Paul is no longer in the CBD. Now he's in prison. And he hears about this church that Epaphras has planted. This dynamic, rich, young people wanting everything there is to know about God. And he writes them a letter. It's like Paul sends them an email. And what's unusual about this email, which we have as the book of Colossians, is he commends them for all their passion. 
He commends them for the desires of their heart. He commends them even for their faith. But here's what he writes to them in Colossians at the beginning of his email in verse 23. He says this, don't drift away. Don't drift away from the hope you received when you heard the gospel. There is this thing called a drift. And what's unusual about it is we don't even know what's happening. I like to surf. I live in Southern California. I took my two nieces surfing. One's in her 20s. She's a fairly decent surfer. The other one is like 13 years old. She's never been on a surfboard. So we decided we'd get one surfboard to teach her how to surf. And we went out into the ocean to catch some waves. And before we knew it, the drift and pull of the ocean current had pulled us way out. And me and this 25-year-old niece of mine kind of look at each other, the young girls on the surfboard, and we realize we are in trouble. This is a serious situation. We have been caught in a drift. We didn't even know it. We weren't even aware of it. And we knew we really had to work hard to kind of get out of this drift. Here's how Paul describes this drift in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Make sure no one captures you with powerless ideas and ways that come through human thinking and spiritual concepts of this world and not on Christ. What is this drift? Here's what it's not. The drift is not backsliding. In the church world, we have this term called black backsliding. It's when somebody is following Jesus and they decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And they stop coming to church. They stop following Christ. Sometimes they entertain some really bad practices. And we label them kind of as backslidden. This is not what Paul is talking about. This is not when you deny Christ. This is when you're so desirous that you add to Christ. You don't reject Jesus. You say, Jesus isn't quite enough for everything I want in life, I got to add something more to it. And Satan's most subtle temptation is not to get you to become a drug addict. It's to take your desire and say, you know what? If you just add this to Jesus, then you'll be good. And that's what's happening in this church. And it's what happens sometimes in our life where we go, I want all there is. So it's Jesus end. Jesus and a significant career. If I have a significant career, if I can look at my life and say I made a difference, if my life has that kind of meaning, if other people can affirm my value, Jesus and significance, then I'll have everything God has for me. And there's a drift that takes place. For some of you who have even a ministry calling, you find yourself pursuing the calling more than pursuing Christ. You spend more time trying to figure out how your life can matter than you do who Jesus is for you. The drift can be anything that the enemy uses. It can be really good things that come from God. But they cause you to all of a sudden drift. You know why? Because when the good things from God seem to disappear, your life with Jesus completely falls apart. And you've discovered Jesus and good things means I'm flourishing in the kingdom. 
But if those good things are gone, financial problems, health problems, all those kinds of things, all of a sudden, me and Jesus were on really shaky ground. And Paul says, be careful, be aware of how the enemy works with this drift. You know what it can even be? As Christians, we should read our Bible and we should pray. But if the motivation behind reading your Bible and praying is anything besides, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to have an encounter with you, Jesus. If it's because I read my Bible and prayed, now Jesus has to act. And even the spiritual practices, if there's some kind of a lever to get God to work, where you go through a week and you haven't really done that very much, you skip church a couple of times, and in your mind you're going, oh, Jesus isn't going to do anything for me. Because it's Jesus and the practices. Do you know who kept the best practices? They knew the word better than anybody else. They prayed five times a day. They, they made Pastor Talk look like a heathen they prayed so well. The Bible says they would go across the ocean to win any convert. They were the Pharisees. And Jesus looked at them and said, you got it all wrong. There is this thing called the drift. And it's not when we deny Jesus. It's when we say, Jesus is great. I just need something else. He's not enough. He's not sufficient. So it's Jesus and significance. Jesus and my ability to behave in a certain way that gets God to act. Jesus and these good things in my life. Because if they're gone, my relationship with Jesus completely falls away. And here's the result of the drift in Colossians 2.19. They lose connection with the head who is Jesus Christ. From whom the whole body supported and held together grows as God causes it to grow. This tragic thing takes place. In an attempt for more of God, you actually get less of him. It diminishes Jesus because in your mind you're going, I'm not running away from Christianity. I'm not running away from the kingdom. I want more of it, but I'm not just looking to Jesus as my provider for it. It's something else, and there is a despair that sets in. You're thinking to yourself, Jesus isn't quite enough. But nothing else is helping. If I just got this job and you get the job. If I just had this affirmation and you get the affirmation. If I just had this money and you get the money. And it doesn't answer it. And there is a despair that sets in. And what's so subtle about it is we're not even aware of it. We become unaware of, wow. That's true, isn't it? There's a doubt Instead of this unbelievable joy and freedom we have with Jesus, every day we question our status before him. Does he like me today? Does he accept me today? Am I his today? And he calls us to live in this absolute freedom and this absolute joy, but instead there's kind of a cloud that hangs over us. And we're in this drift. And like me in the ocean, we've lost our way. We wonder, wow, where's my identity in Christ, the power, the joy, the freedom? So Paul sends these Christians and us an email. And he says, you got to be aware of this. It's a real thing. It will happen. Or it will at least be 
tempted by you from the enemy to make it happen. And he writes in this email, basically really important lesson for them that God wants me to share with you that comes out of three verses in Colossians chapter one. And these three verses basically say, if you want to stop the drift, if you want to walk in the freedom and the life and the joy, you got to know who you were. You got to know who you are and you got to know how to live in your true identity. Here's how it shows to us, starting in Colossians 1, verse 21. You got to know who you were. Here's what he says. Once you were alienated from God, you were his enemies, separated him from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Evil. It seems a little harsh, doesn't it? You know who you were? You were really evil. I have a neighbor, Edwin. He's a nice guy. He's not a Christian. He respects me as a Christian. He respects the church. He's a good husband. He's got two kids, as far as I can tell. He's a, he's a good father. Can you imagine me going to him and going, you are evil, Edwin. It just wouldn't play very well. You're an enemy of God. Because when we define evil, we only define it one-dimensionally. We define evil by morality. And that is true. There is a moral evil. There are people who have gotten saved. In my church, we call them save-saved. Because when you looked at their life, who they were, they were thieves. And they were destructive of other people. And they were racist. And they were murderers. And they were evil. And you can look at their morality and go, they are evil. And when they get touched by Jesus and get saved, save-saved, they know who they were. And some of you were in that group. But many of us are not in that group. We weren't bad, horrible, immoral people. We were fairly good people. So when we get saved, we're grateful for it, but we don't have that same kind of a story. And if you don't know where you came from, then you will slowly drift because there's another dimension to evil that is not just moral evil, it's spiritual evil. You may look good, but in your previous life before Christ, you were battling over the kingship of your life. And God, your creator, wanted to be your Lord over your life, but you wanted to be Lord over your life. And what made you evil, according to Paul, was that you were separate from God and his design and his beauty for your life. If you don't know your past state and where you came from, then you will never fully recognize the glory and the power of what Jesus did. And what Paul is basically saying, you know what your past state was? You were dead. He says in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Some of you here this morning may be dead right now. And you're going, I'm not dead because you're upsetting me. I'm not dead because I'm sitting here. Well, your physical body may be alive. But that part of you, that is your connection to God? He says, you were dead. And what Jesus did was take you from death to life. And if you start with, I've got to know who I was. Christ did not need to die to improve your financial situation. He didn't need to die to tell you how to handle your money well and be generous and be kind. He didn't need to die to improve your marriage, 
to teach you how to love each other and be gracious together. He didn't need to die to make your life better. He needed to die because you were dead and he wanted to bring you to life. He needed to die and resurrect so that you could come to life. But if you don't get a hold of, I was dead because I wasn't that morally bad, you will find yourself drifting. Because what Jesus did was good, but I need more. I need significance. I need the ability to control so I can get God to do what I want to do. People who were really like really, 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 really evil, they're just going, I'm just so glad I'm alive. But for people like me, who were never like that, I got to get a hold of the fact that I was just as dead. I was just as dead and he made me alive and only Jesus can do that. First thing you got to do, you got to know who you were. And you can never forget that. And that's the starting point of going, okay, nothing else, nobody else could take me from death to life. Never. Only Jesus. Then he goes on, he says, well, you also, though, you really have to know who you are now. Here's what he says in verse 22. But now he has reconciled you through the death of Christ in his physical body to present you holy and blameless in God's sight as you stand before him without a single fault. Now, now you are homely and blameless. Now you don't have a single fault. And you're going, oh, if you saw how I talked to my wife this morning. If I said, you are holy, you are blameless, you'd go, ah, doesn't feel that way. Doesn't always look that way. Paul says this really clearly. Jesus presents you. Only Jesus brings you to the Father to present you as holy and blameless. Your spiritual disciplines do not make you holy and blameless. Your significance in life does not make you holy and blameless. Only Jesus and who he is and what he has done makes you holy and blameless. Imagine the crosses. It's almost Easter. There's three crosses. There's one thief who's on the cross and he's having a conversation with Jesus. And then he dies. And imagine this thief waking up and all of a sudden he's surprised because he's at the pearly gates. And he doesn't know what's going on. And there's an angel there with a clipboard going, oh, why are you here? He goes, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not even quite sure what's going on. And the angel says, well, well, do you go to church? No. And the angel's scratching her head and she goes, well, do you know the, the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief goes, I have no idea. Have you prayed devoutly for the last year? No. Why are you here? And the thief thinks about it. And he says, the man hanging on the middle cross said I could come. The man hanging on the middle cross said I could come. This is what Paul wants all of us as Christians me, who has been a Christian for 50 years. Don't ever forget, Joel, who you were. Yeah. 
and all and only of Jesus and what he did. It's what we sang during worship. Don't ever forget who you are now. You are holy. You are blameless. And the enemy will come and he will whisper to your ears, no, you are not. Because you will think about what you are doing, not what Jesus did. How does this work? The best way to illustrate how this works so we can know our identity now and never face the drift and never be tempted by that. There's a story in the New Testament when Jesus is walking along. He's actually walking to do a miracle and he gets interrupted by a woman who has had this, this illness of bleeding for multiple, multiple years. And in that culture, that illness meant she was unclean. She had all kinds of uncleanness on her. So she was not allowed to be in public. She surely was not allowed to touch anybody because if she touched somebody, her uncleanness went on people who were considered clean by their sacrifices. And then they'd have to go through all these rituals again to become clean. But she's so desperate and she's heard about this man named Jesus who has the power to heal. So against all of culture, she fights through this crowd and she has in her mind, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Why? Because the prophet Malachi said the Messiah would come and in the hem of his garment, those tassels, there would be healing in his wings. Those wings means the hem of his garment. So she knows the prophet has said he brings healing if I can just touch him. And she touches him. And the response of Jesus is what's so interesting. Because everybody else would go, oh no, I have been made unclean. Her uncleanness got on me. But Jesus goes, something came out of me to her. Her uncleanness didn't make Jesus unclean. His holiness, his cleanness made her holy and made her clean. And now she was completely clean. So when the enemy comes and whispers at you, you know that American idiot who said you were holy and blameless? I know your thoughts. I know some of your actions. And the drift takes place. What can I do so that I can be holy and clean? And Paul says, church, you got to know who you are because of what Jesus has done, he has imposed upon you his holiness, his cleansing. There was a moment we will soon celebrate where he said, make me unclean. And I will take all of your uncleanness. And I will put it on me. And there is nothing more you can do. Nothing you can add to Jesus to make you into this new, complete, full identity that can walk in joy, that can walk in happiness, that can walk in faith, that can walk in peace, that can walk in power. You have this new identity. But I know what you're thinking, but next month I will have been married for 36 years. All in a row, too. I'm pretty impressed with that. Every year in a row. Same woman. 36 years. Can I tell you something? There were many times we didn't feel very married. There were some times we didn't act very married. There were times we didn't even look married. But we had a covenant. We were married. Because a covenant was there. And we forget that. Especially those of you who are here and maybe further along your faith journey. 
And you didn't have that radical, I was in prison and got saved story. So you're grateful for your salvation, but there is this temptation from the enemy that says, Jesus, I won't say it out loud, but he's not quite enough. I need a life that has significance. I need these things going on in my life. He's not quite enough. I need to validate my faith by my behavior, my spiritual practices, and a drift take place. And then even though your intent is more of God's kingdom, you actually end up with less of Jesus. And Paul says, you got to know who you were. You were dead. You got to know who you are. You are holy. You are blameless. Now you got to live in that. It is not a matter of making yourself holy and blameless. That is not what Christianity is about. That was not what faith is about. God has this dream that his church would be full of bold and audacious Christians living out their faith out there, salt and light, having this significant impact. But that only begins when you discover and really embrace it's Jesus does it all. He is it all. He is my source. He is my life. And there's nothing more that I need than that in me. So he says, if you know who you were and you know who you are, now you got to live in that. And he tells us very specifically how to do that in verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the hope you received when you heard the gospel. We don't add anything to the work of Christ. But there is something we do in response to the work of Christ. When I got married to Marie, there was nothing more we could add to make us married. But being married, there was an effort we could give that would allow our marriage to flourish. It didn't make us married, but it brought to us all of the glory and joy and benefit of being married. And he says three things. You got to believe, you got to stand, you got to hope. If you believe, if you stand, if you hope. And I am so grateful for these three words that help me how to live in my identity so I'll never drift away and I can wake up every morning with hope and faith and energy. Believe. You do not have to achieve. You do not have to perform. The enemy will try to inundate you with thoughts about how you behave. And you know how you know that's true? Because when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning, we all behave a little bit differently than when we walk through our house doors. <laughs> and that's the subtle enemy going, ah, you got to behave a certain way. You have to perform a certain way. And God says, no, you do not have to perform. You do not have to achieve. You just have to believe. You have to trust his love for you when you don't have that much love for him. You have to trust his character. And here's why. There is never any inconsistency in his character. His methodology is sometimes a bit unknown to us. His ways are not our ways. So when we put a trust in his methodology, we expect God to work in certain ways. And when that work doesn't happen according to our understanding, then we got to add to Jesus. He hasn't done what I thought he would do, when I thought he would do it, and I'm actually trusting his methodology, not his character. 
And because his methodology doesn't match up with mine, now I got to add to Jesus. I got to pray harder. I got to do more. I got to find other things. I got to find a solution. I either have to find a lever to get God to work or I've got to find a way to replace what is missing here because I am actually trusting how he will work, not who he is. He says, when he says you got to believe, he's saying, trust in who Jesus is because his ways are not our ways. And sometimes the way in which he works will be different from our understanding. But if I know there is never any inconsistency in his character, it'll keep me rock solid. Believe. Then he says, you got to stand and you have to get a hold of this. When I'm on the beach and my nieces and I are going surfing and all of a sudden the drift pulls us way out. We weren't that familiar with that beach. We weren't familiar with the current tides and the rip tides. How valuable it would have been to have a friend on the beach before we went into water saying, Joel, watch out for the currents there. Joel, be careful that it doesn't suck you out to the ocean. Because we didn't have a friend who understood this. We put ourselves in a perilous situation without even being aware of it. When he says stand, he says you stand. That's a plural. We stand together. You will never stop the drift in your life on your own. You are not wired to do that. I've been here for a couple of days working with the team and some of the vision that I'm hearing around life groups and how God wants to just really take life groups to this incredible level of spiritual friends just coming together, stopping each other from the drift. Where we're going, hey, remember Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Stand true together for Jesus. You got to believe. You have to stand. And then you have to hope. This one Maybe the hardest one. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter three. Since, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Here's what Paul is telling these young Christians. It's wonderful that you are so passionate and wanting everything in the kingdom, but be careful. Because there is an enemy. And you may be even unaware of it because he's so subtle. But don't drift. Don't drift where you are now adding to Jesus. Either to get him to work or to find meaning or purpose or significance in your life. I need something more. Christ really isn't enough. Don't drift. Know who you were. You were dead. And if you know you were dead and only Jesus brought you to life, that's the starting point. Know who you are. Some of you need to hear my words. You are holy. You are blameless. And you may not look like it all the time, and you may not act like it all the time, and you may not feel like it all the time, but you are in a covenant with Jesus Christ. And this is how he sees you. 
That's why we call it amazing grace. It's like, really? Yes. This is how he sees you. But Paul says, you got to know who you were. You got to know who you are. But now you have to live in that. And so you believe and you stand together. But then you have this hope. As Christians on this side of eternity, we live for another time. We live for another place. We were not created for this world. We were created for another world. And he says, you got to keep that hope inside of you. I think there's a picture of an hourglass. I want you to see this picture. See this? This is how we look at life. But if we're honest, we look at the top half of this. And we see the sand running out. Now, if you're in your 20s, you don't because you can't see that far down the road. I turned 60 this year. And I look at the top half and I'm just going, I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. And this kind of panic sets in. And when Paul says, no, you've got to have hope. You go, we don't look at the top half. As Christians, we look at the bottom half. Every day I am getting more life. Every day I'm coming fully alive. Every day I'm getting more faith. Every day I'm getting stronger. Yeah, my physical body may be wearing out a bit, but do not be fooled for a moment. I am more fully alive now than I was in my 40s or my 30s or my 20s. I have this hope that I'm on the bottom half because of what Jesus Christ has done. And when I know who I was dead, who I am holy and blameless, then I can live in a, I believe in who he is. I stand together so you help me. And I have this hope. I was not made for this earth. So the things on this earth that people strive for to give them meaning and significance, power, money, fame, those things because of Jesus? No. I want to make a difference for him? Absolutely. But it will not define me. I want to walk in his blessing? Absolutely. But it will not define me. What will define me is his love and his grace and his purpose. And there is this movement of audacious, bold, spirit-filled Christians who go, Jesus, he defines me. He fills every corner of my heart. He answers every need. If you're here this morning, and just through these words, you'd go, wow, maybe I'm in the drift a little bit. Maybe I wasn't even aware of it, like my friend who got the physical. But there's been a little bit of a drift. And the cause of that, the result of that now is I don't seem to have that kind of level of joy, that level of victory. And clamoring after anything but Jesus to get that is what the drift is all about. The wonderful goodness of Jesus through Paul's letter is if you just go, Lord, show me Jesus. Just Jesus. Protect me. 
I know who I was. I know who I am. And I stand in that. Jesus, I want an encounter with you. So I stay there. Would you bow your heads with me and would you close your eyes? Take a moment, privately, personally. Pastor Tuck's going to come up here and he's going to close this service. But just take a moment as he does. Let Jesus talk to you. Let Jesus in his goodness and his grace bring you back to where you hear his words of how much he loves you, how much he accepts you, how you are completely fulfilled because of him. Let Jesus be sufficient and you will discover everything you are searching for.